A growing chorus of politicians and pundits are clamoring for increased control of the economy as proposals float for new economic paternalism and new forms of surveillance of your finances. Cato scholars are working vigilantly to protect and promote prosperity, entrepreneurship, and free enterprise. Mark Calabria returns to Cato as its new senior advisor. We'll talk about Cato's strategic vision for defending a free economy and how Cato scholars are making inroads with politicians and the public, highlighting the dangers of government intervention in the economy. And we'll take your questions next. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this sponsor briefing. I'm Caleb Brown, Director of Multimedia at the Cato Institute and host of the Cato Daily Podcast. Uh, I am uh, personally very happy to have Mark Calabria back at the Cato Institute. He's our former Director of Financial Regulation Studies. He's rejoined us after stints as Vice President Mike Pence's Chief Economist and Director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency. He is now, as the introduction indicated, senior advisor to the Cato Institute. We'll be talking about how Cato scholars are defending the free economy uh, and making inroads with both politicians and the public highlighting dangers of government intervention. So Mark, first of all, um, I'm sure I'm not the first person to say it, but welcome back to the Cato Institute. Well, thank you so much, Caleb. And, and while you might not be the first, you, you're the most special and I really appreciate it. And it's, it's truly a pleasure <laughs> to be back uh, multimedia with you again. It's it's something I missed uh, a tremendous amount. So again, thank thank you for those kind words. And again, such a great pleasure well, to be back. I, I guess I want to start with this. I in general, uh, Cato Institute folks uh, do not expect to be at least historically do not expect to be drawn into an, an administration. And uh, so, briefly describe if you wouldn't mind your time uh, working, as, as we say, inside the beast, uh, first for uh, chief economist for Mike Pence and then at the uh, FHFA. Quick question. I th thank you, Caleb. I should preface this with, uh, I think, as, as some of our uh, viewers know, and as you know, I spent a number of years on Capitol Hill working on the banking committee in the Senate before I came to Cato. Uh, and, and why that experience was relevant was I did have a number of experiences on the Hill where I felt like that having been in, in the room at the time that I had made a difference on particular pieces of legislation. And I felt that, you know, those differences would not have happened had I not been sitting in that particular chair. Uh, and so when the vice president's office reached out to me uh, and inquired on whether I had an interest on coming by their chief economist, uh, I knew that if in the right spot, I'd be able to make a right difference. Now, of course, something I said pretty regularly when I when I was in the White House is that, you know, if me being here means uh, I win, uh, rather, I only lose eight out of 10 rather than nine out of 10, uh, it was worth it because any one of those 10 items were going to be incredibly important. Uh, and so again, I went in with the attitude of knowing that having the right people in the room can make a right, make a really big impact. Uh, but you have to be realistic and, and you have to have um, modest expectations of what you can achieve, even though on some areas you can achieve quite a lot. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, I spent two years working for Vice President Pence, and it was a really terrific opportunity uh, being part of the economic team. We were able to, to engage with the president's economic team on a constant basis. 
much of my time was spent on taxes and trade and very honored and lucky to have been part of the 2017 tax reform that I, that I think really was important in getting the economy moving in the right direction uh, and was able to be part of the debate on a regular basis. Uh, and so that was just a constant um, great opportunity. I mean, again, learned a lot, but they will contribute a lot. Uh, certainly, you know, increased my understanding of government in a lot of ways. Uh, and but, you know, after the first two years after the midterms, I thought it was probably a pretty good time to do something else. Uh, I had worked on the legislation uh, that created FHFA when I was on Capitol Hill. So when the opportunity came to lead that agency uh, and I was uh, asked whether I'd be open to doing it, I really felt I could bring a lot of background to it. It would be a great experience to be able to run the agency and, and again, brought the perspective of this is what Congress intended to accomplish and the problems that were intended to be fixed. And of course, have spent so much of my career focused on the mortgage finance side uh, and the housing side that I felt this is a real opportunity to be able to fix what is something that's deeply broken, not only in our financial system, in our economy. Uh, and again, no regrets at all, uh, you know, other than the Supreme Court having put me out of a job and cut my term short. Uh, it really was, I, I think, a worthwhile experience. And, you know, I, I think any libertarian should consider, uh, you know, a, a public service at some point, because I can guarantee you that uh, if you aren't willing to do it, somebody else is, uh, and they're probably not going to be able to come up with the same solutions you would. All right. Uh, we have some questions from our uh, viewers, and I would reframe the the Supreme Court case that put you out of a job and say that it took a Supreme Court decision there you go. to get you out of that Oof. job. Maybe that's a, a better way of thinking about it. We have that some questions from uh, <laughs> we have some questions from frame. viewers. John John Early, uh, somebody who's uh, been affiliated, done research for uh, the Cato Institute in the past. Uh, John asks, who has done the best research estimating the effect on economic growth from the increased transfer payments to households, uh, both in the last two years and going forward with new proposals? And uh, what is the answer to X billion dollars added transfer payments reduce GDP annual growth by Y percent in the long run? So while I'm tempted to answer John's question by saying that, of course, John Early is the best researcher in this area, I do want to take a moment and really plug the research he's done for Cato Institute. Uh, you know, and the op-eds and work he's done with Phil Graham have just been tremendous amount of insight uh, on inequality and transfer payments and, and, the, and the data behind that. So I certainly have been heavily influenced by the work that John's done. Uh, someone else who has also heavily influenced my way of thinking about these issues to get to John's question, uh, because we have seen, you know, starting with the certainly an expansion of assistance programs in the Great Recession, expansion the last couple of years, particularly the CARES Act last year, uh, and the discussions about the transportation, but the infrastructure bill rather build back better. Many of these things ultimately have very high marginal uh, tax rates in terms of loss of benefits for workers, and they're going to have very large impacts on the labor market. And quite frankly, I don't think there's anybody who's doing better work in this area than Casey Mulligan at the University of Chicago. Uh, and of course, I was honored to be able to overlap a little bit. Casey also served as chief economist at the Council of Economic Advisors when, when Kevin Hassett was the chair there. Uh, and so Casey is updating pretty regularly uh, the work he does in terms of build back better and estimates of job losses, GDP impact. Uh, and certain, certainly there are others out there doing this work. Uh, but I think Casey's probably been the most cutting edge. And, and certainly his book, The Redistribution Recession, which covered the Great Recession 2008, was certainly very influential on me. And I'll give one example. 
uh, in that a lot of what came out of Casey's work uh, in the Great Recession was the estimate of how much the mortgage assistance programs that were means tested. And you really think about this, uh, there were almost 30% plus marginal implicit tax rates in these mortgage assistance programs. And it really had a very big work disincentive in the Great Recession. So when I was at FHFA and we were setting up assistance programs at COVID, it was really important to me that, listen, we need to set these up in a way where we're providing assistance, but that we're not also penalizing work. Uh, and quite frankly, I think one of the reasons we saw such a snapback in employment uh, in 2020 is because we didn't repeat some of the same errors uh, of the Great Recession where so many of the assistance programs penalized work. Of course, unfortunately, that's not everything that is consistent across the board, but to me, what we were working on in the mortgage space I do think made a big difference in not repeating some of the errors in the previous mortgage programs. All right, a uh, question from Ray Bilson. Ray asks, could you tell me, tell us more about how the government process works for formulating economic policy uh, and how easy is it to get a limited government perspective heard? A, a great question from Ray and appreciate that. Maybe I'll answer the, the, the latter part of it first and then go into the detail. And I'll just say from, from my experience in the two years that I spent at the White House, uh, I never had a problem voicing a limited government ex, uh, perspective. Uh, obviously, I wasn't always able to persuade everybody. I didn't win every argument. In fact, probably lost more than I won. Uh, but I never had, I never felt there was an obstacle to presenting that view. Uh, I would say one of the things that was helpful for me was it was almost never the case that I was the lone person presenting a free market view. And in some sense, they're, in my view, some some unsung heroes. I will certainly say for certainly the first year, 2017, uh, when I was working in the White House, uh, Mick Mulvaney, when heading OMB, was a, large, was a very consistent voice uh, for shrinking government. And I would sit here in meetings and he would have a long list of agencies proposing to cut. And of course, we didn't win on those fights. Uh, but I can tell you that Mulvaney, for one, was was a great ally in that regard. Also thinking of OMB, uh, Naomi Rao, who have a, is, of course, Justice Rao today, when she was heading OIRO, really just took a very limited government view in the review of regulations. And, and I think on the regulatory front, which because the regulatory front is so amorphous and there's so many different regulations, I think it's sometimes missed. But one of the really big accomplishments there was reducing the regulatory burdens um, and Naomi played such an important role in that. Of course, there were others. Russ Vogt, who I've known for a long time, was often someone regularly pushing. And of course, Paul Winfrey, who's now at the Heritage Institute, who was on the Domestic Policy Council then, was a constant ally. And that's just to name a few. Uh, again, it was almost always the case that we're, there were at least a third or a fourth of us in the room who were arguing for a limited government perspective. Uh, unsurprisingly, often the pushback was from the agencies themselves. And so agencies do tend to end up reflecting the constituent interests around those agencies. You know, it's not a shocker to say that uh, it doesn't really matter who pre who the president is. You can consult, you can count on, for instance, a consistent farmer's perspective from USDA. I mean, that's, that's just always how that ends up operating uh, and how you push back on that. I would say somewhat surprising to me well, it's also, we get a lot of resistance on a pretty regular uh, uh, pace from the National Security Council, almost sort of always took an expansive government view. And, and since they were at the table in almost all of these conversations, that's where a lot of the margins of the battle really were. Uh, but to go back to the first part of the question, 
Uh, a lot of this is really driven by uh, coordination from the National Economic Council. And again, particularly in the, in the 2018 when I was there, uh, when Larry Kudlow came on and was director, Larry was a consistent voice for trying to shrink government. Um, but again, the, mostly with the NEC role was a coordinating role. You know, they would convene, you would bring the components of the White House along with the relevant agencies. So for instance, if we were debating an energy topic, you would have NEC convening the, the, the meeting. There would be somebody from the Department of Energy. There'd be somebody from the vice president's office, usually me representing that, you know, somebody from OMB and any other relevant agencies. And, and the really approach was to try to craft a consensus that everybody would live with. So even in the instances where I wouldn't say that we got the outcome that I would have preferred, I almost always was able to move the outcome in my direction. And, and again, that's part of the, 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 the expectation going in is you have to understand that you may not completely win the issue, but you may be able to influence it enough uh, that it's certainly better than if you'd not been there. Uh, and again, I felt that we had several victories in that regard. It's certainly also worth reflecting that the NEC coordinating process is pretty much the case with almost every White House, at least every modern White House. Really, so much of this is driven through the NEC, and except on the, on the foreign policy side, which much more driven on the NSC. And of course, the trade policy tends to have a much different direction, somewhat a broader uh, scheme. But even then, uh, I felt like I was never... I was never held back from being able to offer a view, pushing things in a slightly different direction. So again, I'd be the first to say, won some, lost some, but always felt like I had an opportunity to make my case. All right, uh, related question here. I know that you, you're uh, welcome, you know, welcomed back to the to Cato Institute as an advisor. And this, this question may speak more directly to your view back on the outside uh, looking in. Uh, and the question from Anonymous here, what are libertarians to do when both major parties favor economic intervention? Uh, we've seen sort of uh, something of a realignment politically, uh, especially among Republicans in the last few years, and a willingness to engage in economic intervention is certainly uh, core to that uh, realignment. So what do libertarians do? What should libertarians do in that environment? So I think you have to work along every front. So, you know, of course, you know, we at Cato are, are libertarian in the, in the small L, and so we're not part of the Libertarian Party per se. Uh, but I think continuing to work with alternatives to the Republican and Democrat framework is an option. But I don't think it's I don't think it's the only approach you should take. Uh, certainly, there are going to be issues where we find allies uh, on the left. There are issues where we find allies on the right. Um, and again, I think we have to look at this and say, you know, there are no necessarily permanent coalitions, but there, but the permanent interest from our perspective is limited government. Uh, and we have to really find those partners and work with those who we can make progress with uh, and focus on the issues where we can. Um, certainly part of what Cato has always done incredibly well uh, is working on those perspectives where you're trying to educate the broader public. Uh, and I think we've actually seen this. I mean, many of us have seen the recent Gallup polling where the support for more activist government has uh, dropped dramatically in the last 12 months. I think that's a good thing. Uh, ultimately, politicians are going to look at polls and they're going to look at where the public is. Uh, and so, again, building that broader case with the public, which is such a core facet of the, of the Cato message and Cato mission, is critical. Uh, but I also think that we need to be able to focus on are there policymakers that you know we can work with? Uh, are there limited and targeted things where we can try to make some progress? Uh, and I believe there are. And, and part of the reason, if not the 
predominant reason I'm back is to try to help us focus on, you know, where are the policymakers on the Hill or the agencies where we can make some difference or, or, or what can we do to try to, you know, essentially create the groundwork. So if there is a window of opportunity again, uh, to be able to push things in a more limited government direction, that we're ready for that opportunity. Uh, my concern certainly would be that if we get a window, it might not be a window that's open very long. So we've got to be ready to, to hit the ground running when that window opens. So some of this is going to be short term. Some of this is going to be longer term. But I think we need to do all of those things. Uh, unfortunately, I, I don't see um, I don't see a silver bullet that's going to be a one fix for us. We're going to have we're going to be fighting on multiple fronts and we have to fight on all those fronts. Thank dovetails. Uh Pretty nicely with uh, conversations I've had with uh, Alex Narasta and some others about uh, yeah. taking advantage of uh, windows of opportunity as they present themselves. We have a question from Laura Peterson. Uh, Laura, thank you for uh, tuning in and for your question. Uh, she asks, uh, to what extent and in what respects were regulatory burdens actually reduced? I assume she's referring to uh, in the Trump administration or your time at uh, FHFA, she she adds, please be specific as specific as possible. Uh, th thank you for that question, Laura. And it's interesting. I'm trying to remember whether it's AFF or there's a couple of organizations out there that do measures of what the regulatory burdens have been by administration. And so there's data that's real, that's publicly available. Uh, some of it, of course, is based on the government, you know, generated estimates of of cost. And so, of course, there should be met with some degree of skepticism. But the point being is you can compare what those measures are under the current administration, the last administration, previous administration. And I think it's extremely clear uh, that the regulatory burden in the aggregate greatly declined, certainly 2017, 2018. I mentioned earlier Naomi Rao, who, who was the head of our IRA uh, in 2017, and, and she really was a, a leader in that regard. I think you'd have to look at specific areas. You know, were you, for instance, to dig into what EPA was doing? It was night and day. I, I really don't think that there's, you know, any ambiguity between what you had in Obama EPA and what you had in the Trump EPA and where you see EPA going back now. Uh, and I think this is critical. You know, we recently saw pass an infrastructure bill uh, by Congress. But at the end of the day, what we focused on in terms of streamlining, for instance, the federal permitting process, I think far, did far more to try to move infrastructure along. Uh, you saw a number of things at Interior that I think really focused on trying to be able to uh, remove regulatory burdens on domestic energy production. So I, I, probably where I think the biggest successes were in the EPA and the Interior, uh, we were able to do some modest changes to Dodd-Frank with uh, regulatory reform for community banks. I'd be the first to say that went nowhere uh, as far as I think it needed to uh, or where it should have been. Obviously, changes on the tax side that I think greatly reduce complexity and reduce some of the distortions in the tax code. There were some areas where I would be the first to say I was disappointed we didn't make more progress. You know, labor is a good example where I would say we basically held the line. There were some issues in terms of, you know, federal employees and uh, my, my then White House colleague, James Shirk, who handled the labor issues, fought every day and I think made a lot of successes. But at the end of the day, we could have done a whole lot more and, and, and never got the Department of Labor, quite frankly, where we needed to be. Uh, there were certainly some areas where I think we could have done more. But I also think there's some successes uh, and certainly relative to what we inherited. And, and, and <laughs> I think there was a lot of progress on the regulatory front and just even regulatory approach. So when I ran uh, FHFA, you know, while my view was, of course, trying to protect the system from a failure of Fannie and Freddie, my philosophy to regulation very much was 
uh, I'm going to tell people what we're going to do. We're going to be transparent about it. We're going to explain that. Uh, and I think that's something that's missing now. I mean, again, so much of my expertise in history has been financial regulation. Uh, and we all remember uh, in the financial regulatory space, you know, with Dodd-Frank, there became this phrase, uh, you know, regulation by enforcement. It was most associated with CFPB, but it also was something you saw across other financial regulators where the system was, you know, we're going to tell you what the law is by suing you, <laughs> which of course is, it's not a really, you know, I think, you know, rule of law approach. So big change there, just somewhat in terms of the approach and, and the regulatory enforcement. So again, uh, you know, the, I think the data actually is pretty, pretty clear on the aggregates that the cost of regulation, you know, significantly declined. Um, and of course, that doesn't mean that uh, there was certainly a whole lot of additional work to do and still to do. Yeah. So when uh, you talk about uh, a uh, regulatory agency, an executive agency suing somebody to to explain to you what the law is, um, it, you know, it, it, if you're working on behalf of an administration that would like to be activist with respect to uh, how it conducts itself uh, with respect to the private sector, uh, you know, an agency can get a twofer in a way they can they can explain the law to you. They can also discover what the limits of their own power are. And, you know, a great example of this in the, in the financial services space is that Dodd-Frank created a term abusive. And, you know, there really was no history around it. Uh, and the CFPB really started under uh, under Kathy Craninger to try to define that, you know, and, and so that you could know ahead of time if you were doing business with financial services, based, whether you were doing something that was abusive or not. And I think for the most part that most participants in the financial services market, I mean, A, they don't really want to harm their customers. They'd like their customers to be repeat customers. They'd like satisfaction. Um, and while, of course, there are bad actors in every market and you can go after those, there's a big gray area where you may have just stepped across the line, but you didn't know it. Uh, and so, unfortunately, what we've seen in the new CFPB leadership is a sense of like, oh, well, we're not going to define that. We're going to stop the efforts to define it. We're going to let the courts define that. and The courts are going to define it by us suing lots of people. And so then you have either this contraction in credit because nobody knows where the line is, so they want to stay away from it. Of course, those litigation costs are ultimately passed forward to consumers. The, you know, unfortunately, we often see this view that you know you can sue all these companies and somehow it'll come out of like executive bonuses. No, it gets passed upon along to the consumer. Uh, and of course, at the end of the day, you just end up with all this uncertainty. Where, to me, if you can have a process where you try to figure out where the lines are, you try to draw those lines as clearly as possible. And of course, it's a legitimate debate to say where those lines are. But to me, I don't really think it's a legitimate debate that government should draw the lines. And perhaps the philosophy I sort of bring to this is uh, I'm not a lawyer, so perhaps that explains my misinterpretation of law sometimes. But what I remember from what I understand about contract law is that ambiguities in contracts are written against those who wrote the contract. And if you think about much of what government does as a contract, it's government writing it. And so my approach always was a regulator is that if the regulations that I promulgate are ambiguous and unclear, then it's on me to make them clear. And it's not on those subject to them to just guess what it's supposed to be. And unfortunately, that's not a widely shared philosophy or widely shared view. But I think it's an important view if you want to have a healthy economy, you want to be able to have market participants decide you know, how to plan their business. Uh, and I will even say it's attitudinal. You know, one of the things that really struck me 
And I'll have to admit, before I went over to the White House, I was fairly skeptical of this, that, you know, almost a sort of Keynesian animal spirits business confidence. But one of the things that really struck me was in the first six months of being in the White House and spending a large number of meetings, uh, meeting with business representatives. Um, and so, for instance, I, you know, one of the meetings that really struck with me was meeting with a group of community bankers from New Hampshire had come into Washington uh, and asked to meet with me. Uh, and again, these were all small community banks. This was not some Wells or Bank of America or City. These are you know people with a few branches. Uh, and I remember after the meeting that one of the bankers had come up to me and said, you know, Mark, I've been coming down to Washington for eight years, and this is the first time I've ever not been made to feel ashamed of what I do for a living. Uh, and again, there's just an attitude of recognizing that while, of course, there are bad actors in any industry, as there are in government, that the broad range of what the private sector does commercially is important and is critical and is something we should all celebrate and be proud of. Um, and so just this attitude of hostility to the private sector, this sort of, you know, you didn't build that attitude. Uh, I do think that that has, again, I was skeptical about it until I went to the White House in terms of it having an actual impact on the economy. But I'm very much convinced that, you know, part of what does drive the economy is the extent to which businesses feel like they're under attack. Uh, and again, none of this takes away from our ability to go after bad actors. But how do we allow good actors to be able to have the space and certainty uh, and encouragement and, and belief that they're actually contributing to society? Uh, and again, uh, we saw a massive change in that direction. All right, a uh, question from Anonymous, which uh, uh, your uh, previous comments really lead into pretty well. Yeah. Did you come away from your experience, uh, this most recent experience in uh, government, more sympathetic to government action or more radicalized in your uh, libertarian views, having witnessed, as they say, the sausage being made? You know, I, I'm more radicalized, uh, you know, on a couple of fronts. You know, the first being, and, and let me say, you know, I sp I've spent so much of my career in financial services. And, and of course, I, I do believe that if you have the government come in and create some sort of moral hazard, whether it's explicit guarantees such as deposit insurance or whether it's implicit guarantees such as too big to fail, um, that you do have a responsibility to come in and regulate the moral hazard that's around that. And of course, the first best is you don't create the moral hazard in the first place, but, but we, we start from where we are. Uh, and if you come into running in the regulatory agency in the financial services space, and there is that moral hazard, now how do you deal with that? Uh, and so at the end of the day, having spent time trying to fix that problem in the Fannie and Freddie space, as well as being a member of the Financial Stability Oversight Council and, and following bank regulation for, for a large number of years, you know, I really concluded that you know the moral hazard's always always going to swamp the the safety and soundness regulation, uh, and so I have even less faith in, in the ability of our financial regulators today to provide financial stability than I did going in. Uh, and this is not a reflection of any one individual; it's just a reflection of the incentives in the system, you know, the constant uh, you know industry lobbying, and and and, and even the, to the extent that there's consumer advocacy lobbying, it's very rarely from a stability you know, financial uh, stability, or even from a taxpayer's perspective. And unfortunately, there's no real constituency for financial stability. Uh, there's also no real constituency, uh, you know, for protecting the taxpayer in that regard. So on the financial services front, uh, I'm, I'm probably more pessimistic than I've ever been having lived it up front and seen it. 
Uh, and seeing what the limits of somebody like myself, who really was committed to protecting the system, protecting the taxpayer, you know, limiting government could actually achieve. And, and I think I actually achieved quite a lot. Um, so that was a bit jarring. And uh, I think really kind of reset. Again, I still think back to my earlier comments, it's critical that libertarians are willing to go in and do public service. Um, because again, it, it will be worse if you don't. Um, but, you know, again, I'm realistic about what you can achieve. And do think we should be very skeptical anytime we wrap some sort of guarantee. You know, I was glad to see it drop out of, you know, we'll, we'll put aside the question of the broader infrastructure bill, which I'm, uh, you know, unsurprisingly a skeptic of, but part of the conversation was creating an infrastructure bank. Uh, and I just think we need to be extremely skeptical about having government run financial institutions because they will never end up being well regulated is my experience. Uh, a question from Stephen, and then I think we might uh, wrap up with this or maybe yeah. one more question. Yeah. Uh, Stephen sure. says, Democrats such as Jimmy Carter were champions of deregulation in the 1970s, and don't you ever forget it. Uh, liberals today, he says, uh, tend to oppose eliminating what libertarians would consider unnecessary regulation. So what do you think is the best way to convince people on the left that deregulation of any particular sort benefits middle and working class Americans. Yeah, if you go back and read the history and, and certainly the work that, that Jimmy Carter did and, and, and obviously Alfred Kahn who, who oversaw his efforts on airline deregulation as well as the financial services deregulation, you know, and people forget that Ted Kennedy was a, just a champion of deregulation in the 70s. Um, and really what was driving that was a real clear recognition of the harm that regulation was doing to consumers. Um, and so that's what we need to rebuild. And one example of that that I think we are seeing today is, you know, as somebody who's worked on housing policy for 20 years, you've really seen a sea change in the conversation on the left around zoning, you know, and finally a recognition that perhaps, you know, excessive zoning, uh, minimum lot size requirements, all of these things, you know, are limiting the availability to provide affordable housing. Uh, I don't think it's completely taken over and I don't think it's won the day, but I can I'll certainly be the first to say, you know, the zoning conversation on the left is so different from what it was even 10 years ago, much less 20 years ago. And why is that is because you can't help but go to places like San Francisco and see how regulation has destroyed opportunity, uh, you know, for low income, you know, low income households, people who would move there otherwise, how it is really limited opportunities. So, I really do think, I think we at Cato generally do a pretty good job of this, but ultimately, you know, if we are to be successful uh, working with people on the left to roll back regulation, we really do have to very clearly help illustrate and demonstrate the damage that's done uh, on the regulatory side to low-income households and, and, and again, uh, middle-class households, but we need to be able to have those figures. It's never going to be about simply business complaining. It's always going to be ultimately about how do you demonstrate how these regulations harm consumers? Uh, did did somebody not pay the light bill over there, Mark? <laughs> a, Is that what's going on? That's a real good I question. Think, I, I think you didn't move enough and the lights automatically go off. That's just one of the uh, ways we save money. At the oh, look at that. So there, we the clapper. there we go. There we go. Wonderful. It's snapper. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, you, you mentioned earlier about these windows of opportunity. We might call them Overton windows. Uh, yeah. it, if you will. But uh, one question that we have here from Anonymous, what do you see as the major opportunities either in some specific policy area or a general approach to government outreach to help Cato have a greater impact? 
That's a great question. Let me start with that, perhaps, you know, recalling some of my experience in 2017 in, in two particular policy areas. Uh, one was a success and one wasn't. And let me talk about why. The first one was a success was the 2017 tax reform that was done. And again, you know, did it cut as much or simplify as much as I would have liked? You know, of course not, but it was a move in the right direction. Um, and I would be the first to say that so much credit for the 2017 tax bill belongs to former Congressman Dave Camp and, and Congressman Kevin Brady. Uh, you know, I had testified in front of Camp's sub, a Ways and Means Committee back in 2013 on how do we cap, you know, or eliminate state and local tax deductions and mortgage interest. And so to be able to be part of the team to see that implemented, what I had advocated for for years, was really terrific. But because of the work that was done in Congress where you had a consensus outline of a tax reform plan. And of course, there were elements of it, like the border adjustment taxes that, that that went away and weren't part of the ultimate reform. The core parts of the reform had been vetted for years, had been studied by economists, had really had built a consensus around it. And I can say we never would have gotten that done in 2017 if that work had not been done previous to 2017. Now, the other example is, you know, I was in the room for a number of healthcare conversations early on. Uh, and while, of course, you know, pretty much every Republican ran on appealing Obamacare. The reason Obamacare was not repealed in 2017 was there was no real alternative. Uh, the alternatives that was there were crafted on the fly. There was no consensus built. And we're somewhat seeing this today, uh, you know, with the Democrats' efforts on reconciliation, where every day or every hour you read about some new proposal that somebody throws out there, you know, let's tax this, let's tax that. And then there's no consensus because none of it's really been vetted. There's been no real process to build a consensus. And the message from the reconciliation we're seeing ongoing today, although I, I do think they'll come up with a final bill, in uh, the message from uh, the inability to appeal, appeal, uh, repeal Obamacare is you just can't wait to do the work when the window opens. You have to do the work ahead of time. Uh, and so I certainly think that one of the efforts that Cato should look at is what should we do further in tax reform? But how do we come up with a health care plan that moves us in a free market direction if the window opens again? Of course, you mentioned earlier, you know, our mutual friend and colleague, Alex Narasta. There may be opportunities and well are opportunities on the immigration front where we can move things forward today. Uh, with the current administration, and we need to take advantage of that. And I know Alex has done work over the years on, you know, what are some opportunities on the immigration front? Uh, there are opportunities that we may be able to do on the criminal justice front that make front and make sense. And I know we've we've run into a little bit of headway on that in, in Capitol Hill, but this is not to say that, you know, we simply are trying to plan for Republicans or Democrats. It's got to be strategic and say, you know, where can we find our allies? Where can we put those plans uh, together ahead of time? that makes some sense, that can work in a way um, that really that really are put together ahead of time. But at the end of the day, the lessons I would really take away is, uh, A, we've got to have a package of plans and cannot just assume that we can throw something together when the window opens, but that we've got something that, that we've vetted, that we've worked with members of Congress and others on, that we know there's support for, that is doable. So to having something where it's just, uh, you know, repeal and let the market completely figure it out, while I may be sympathetic to that as something that's going to work, that's not anything we're ever going to be able to get in legislation or regulation. So part of this is what can, what what is the Overton window? This doesn't mean we don't continue to try to widen that window because those efforts should, you know, always continue. Um, but some of those are some of the areas I would focus on. I mentioned, you know, earlier that one of my perhaps disappointments and frustrations was how little uh, the Trump administration got done on labor 
uh, I, I really do think this is an opportunity and something we need to focus on. You know, we, the, the intellectual conversation around minimum wage, and, and, and of course, we've made a lot of progress, I think, intellectually talking about occupational licensing, uh, but there are so many areas uh, on the labor front that just limit opportunity uh, and, again, keep people out of the labor market. And I think that's such an area where there's so much opportunity that we really do need to be focused on it. Because at the end of the day, I, I'm of the belief that for so many, for most of us, a job is really so much defining of meaning and wealth. Uh, and I recognize that perhaps the conversation around wealth taxes and you didn't build that and all these things that there is this perspective out there that somehow wealth is just something that falls into your lap. When at the end of the day, wealth is something that people create. And the way that wealth is created by most of us is not like we come up with a patent or an internet technology. It's that we work. And, and so making work a more viable opportunity for, for people, I think it's just an incredibly important libertarian goal as well as an economic policy goal, as well as a social goal. And I think that's an area where we, we will and, and should do more. All right. Uh, that is all the time that we have for today. So, Mark, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thank you to the staff for making this happen. If we didn't get to your question, you can send it directly to Mark or you can send it directly to a member of our development team uh, as well. So we look forward to hosting you for our next e-briefing and it should go without saying, but it will not go without saying as long as I am uh, sitting here that uh, we thank you for your support of the Cato Institute. And it is certainly not overstating it to say that without your help, we simply could not do the work that we do promoting individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Talk to you again next time.